What is your delay, Captain? We're waiting, sir. Waiting for what? Private Doss. Who's Private Doss? I always dreamed about being a doctor, but uh, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. But you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. And that's going to be my way to serve. This is a gift from the United States government. I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. She don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. With the world tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. So welcome to another podcast in our special Oscars edition. This is the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection Conversations with Sound Artists podcast. I'm Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and I am super excited. Uh, Today we are on the lot at Sony uh, talking to you about Hacksaw Ridge, and I'm thrilled that we have three uh, nominees uh, from the film sound team here. We have uh, Robert McKenzie, Andy Wright, and Kevin O'Connell. Um, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, I want to start with uh, just a, a little bit about the film. Um, so, you know, this is obviously it's a World War II picture, conscientious objector. Uh, Desmond Doss is is a guy who kind of ends up inadvertently in one of the bloodiest, most terrible battles of World War II. Um, and he won't pick up a weapon. So that's sort of like, that's that's kind of the irony of the setup of the film. And it gave you guys a lot of room to play with some really interesting sound. But I, I'm, I'm kind of curious for you guys how you're going through this process. Um, you know, for uh, Robert and Andy, this is your first Oscar nomination. So congratulations and, and, and good luck at the show. But like, how? tell me a little bit about how you're going through this. You just had the nominees luncheon. It's just like, this must be a very exciting time for you. Yeah, it's uh, kind of taking it all on board, you know, over the past couple of weeks. I personally haven't had more emails and phone calls and text messages from people. So it's been um, it's been a great experience in, in that way. I haven't done a whole lot of work over the past couple of weeks because uh, I've been trying to sift through all that. Um, but it's just an amazing thing to be recognized uh, on this level. And I think it sends a great uh, message out there for the strength of the Australian uh, sound post industry. And um, and uh, just a you know fabulous fabulous recognition for uh, the work that we do. Absolutely. Uh, now, Mr. O'Connell, this is not your first nomination. In fact, I believe I I, I believe this is your twenty first nomination. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that would be correct. <laughs> well, congratulations. Is it is it as as fresh as it was the first time? As I say, with a gulp in my throat. Uh, <laughs> listen, yes, it is, and it's and it's wonderful. Um, I got this uh, amazing opportunity to work with these two really talented guys and, and their team. Um, you mentioned uh, Desmond Doss uh, and, and, and the film. Um, I met with Bill Mechanic about eight months prior to us getting into the mix. Maybe it was close to a year. Bill's one of the producers Bill of the film. the producer, mm-hmm. right. And uh, he was pitching me this idea of doing this movie. Uh, he explained to me about Desmond Doss, that he was a pacifist. He wanted to serve his country. 
uh, and and all of the trials and tribulations that he faced uh, trying to get into the army and and trying to uh, you know do his do his uh, duty for his country and and uh, and then he told me that it was a very low budget film they had to shoot the whole <laughs> thing in Australia uh, it was a hundred million dollar movie with a forty million dollar budget. Uh, and uh, and uh, and then he uh, told me that uh, Mel Gibson was going to direct it. Yeah. And listen, I I, uh, uh, I I felt honored that he was asking me to do it. Um, I, I understand that it was low budget and there was not a lot of money in it. But to me, the story was so compelling that I felt uh, uh, you know just honored to be a part of it. And uh, so I got to travel down to Sydney to work with these two fine guys uh, for about a month. Uh, we pre-dubbed uh, down in Sydney. And then we uh, brought the film back to America to final, uh, just because of Mel's schedule, he had to be in America. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so we had to bring it back here to final. Well, and I was kind of curious about how this how this uh, merry band of warriors came together. Um, you guys, so uh, Robert and Andy, you guys have worked together before, but you had never worked with Kevin. Um, and and the film started off in Australia uh, because that's where the film was. Uh, that's where they shot the film, and so the post production started there. And Kevin, as you mentioned, you went down to what, it was Sound Firm and and in Sydney, and you guys did some work there, and then brought the film. So, but you guys are also serving double duty. You're sound designers and sound editors as well, and then you brought Kevin in uh, for the for the mix. So. How, tell me a little bit about you know how you guys established your working relationship and divvied up the duties and kind of who was doing what. Well, um, I started fairly uh, early on in the process while they were editing the film. Had a meeting with John Gilbert, the picture editor, and Mel, and they wanted some sounds to help them with the with the film with the cutting. So, so they had already shot the film and yeah. had started the editing process at Correct. that point? yeah. So they were looking to you to provide some some rough sound effects so that they could cut to? Yeah, some, some um, atmospherics and some battle sounds because um, they decided early on that they wouldn't have any music for the first battle scene. So that was the first big thing that we tackled. So which kind of leads me into one of the things that I want to dig into a little bit more, but there are basically three... There are three separate battle sequences that kind of basically take up the last half of the movie. Is that is structurally kind of right? Mm -hmm. um, and I am I'm presuming that uh, there wasn't a lot of usable production track from the battle sequences uh, because you know what you know what happens with a with a, a battle sequence in, in terms of just the chaos of production. So what what state were things in when you guys came on board and, and, and started working? Yeah, well, from a dialogue point of view, um, the sound recordist Peter Grace did a, a, a very good job in capturing a lot of that sound. Uh, the battlefields, obviously, yeah, very chaotic. Um, we had issues with bugs and things like insects that were shot in an Australian summer in the um, in the, just outside of Sydney. Um, shot, in, shot in Australian summer, substituting for Japan. That's right. Right. Yep. Yeah. On the size, a set the size of about, of, of about an American football field, so not a big set. Um, so they had some problems with insects, uh, with aeroplanes flying over and things. We wanted to, um, you know, give that sense of Okinawa being a dead place. There was no no life there, so we, we didn't want to have any insect sounds in the in the ambient tracks. So we couldn't have any on the dialogue tracks. Uh, and also went through the process of, of trying to inject a lot more energy into the performances during those battle sequences. So a rigorous ADR process, and all our cast were fantastic at. Uh, at putting 150% back into the uh, back into the film, and Mel was right on board with all that ADR. He's very open to trying new things, mm -hmm. uh, very open to changing performances if he thought it would work better with the energy. 
Um, and a big shout out to Andrew Garfield. We put him through 24 <laughs> hours plus of ADR in uh, three or uh, two different countries in London and um, in LA, and he, he never faltered once. Uh, I was, I was going to say, it, I, with Andrew Garfield, it, I feel like you probably did an entire day just of breathing ADR with him. Easily. Yeah. Easily. Uh, with the exception of the dialogue that was actually captured and usable, uh, you know, the the explosions were, uh, they used these devices called box bombs that looked cool and made a big flurry of dirt come up, but they sounded more like firecrackers, so they were completely unusable. Right. The guns were all props, and uh, they uh, were shooting half loads or, or, uh, or um, you know, uh, blanks, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of times they weren't even shooting. They were ju- the muzzle flashes were just visual effects. So every single gun explosion, whiz-by, ricochet, everything, that whole... Uh, battle had to be completely choreographed by these guys. They did an amazing job of stitching together that battle and putting perspective and focus when need be to sort of give a backdrop for Andrew Garfield, uh, Luke Bracey, and uh, Vince Vaughn to, to run around and make you feel like you're uh, on that battlefield in Okinawa. So basically 90% of, of, of the entire battles were all done by the uh, post-production sound team. That's amazing. And so I know that that you know, authenticity to the period was important uh, for you guys as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, tracking down weaponry and 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 how that? You know, obviously there was a, a tremendous amount of material that you guys had to put together for the film. And can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. Well, we we started with um, you know with yeah, authenticity, as you say. So we wanted every weapon to be the real the real deal, um, and every explosion to be the real deal. And then we set about uh, characterizing those weapons uh, so we decided to make the American guns sort of big and heavy and um, with lots of firepower and the Japanese guns were sort of more uh, specific with uh, half the half the gunshot powder mm-hmm. um, and they sound much more accurate and um, sort of and more low powered but uh, precise um, and so we just we changed the sound through mixing and and manipulation depending on the situation the characters were in and and you know what the music was doing and what the scene dictated and tell me a little bit about foley what <laughs> i take it there was a tremendous amount of foley on the picture as well there was um mario vaccaro our foley artist who's a veteran of 20 odd years of foley recording and foley walking um, was in charge of the foley and, and, and did a fabulous job. The, the guys were up against it. Again, as Kevin said, it's not a huge budget film, so they had to try and fit it into a, to a, a medium-sized kind of amount of time. Uh, and uh, Steve Burgess, our foley editor, really went above and beyond in, in placing all that stuff and cutting it and actually you know, doing a little bit of mixing in his, in his own edit suite as well. So uh, all, of, all of that foley through the battle sequences was really kind of the glue that attached the, the characters to the dialogue and then the surrounding sound effects, you know, behind them and just lead to the believability of, you know, that's actually a person standing there running, carrying a weapon and screaming for their, you know, for their lives. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I wanted to, I, I wanted to ask you, one of the things that, um, that I noticed right away <clears throat> watching the film is, like I said, there's these three distinct battle sequences. There's a, the first time they storm Hacksaw Ridge and then, and then they, you know, they wait overnight and then there's a second battle scene the next morning and then... Uh, maybe a, a third battle scene the next day or a couple days later when they go back up and mm-hmm. <clears throat> storm the ridge again. But one of the things that I noticed right away was um, stylistically, 
uh, even in terms of the cinematography and certainly in terms of the editing, the three battle sequences are all really distinct from each other. They look very different. Um, and I, I was just curious uh, for you, you know, what, how did that dictate your approach to putting together the soundtrack for those three battle sequences? Well, uh, I, I think we all, um, you know, took, uh, you know, Mel gave us a great opportunity uh, uh, to have the first battle be, it was about 10 minutes long and there was n- no music in it. So it was 100% sound effects and dialogue. And while that may seem uh, simple on the out- outset, but it, it's really not because, like I said, uh, the entire battle had to be choreographed both on camera and off camera as to what was going on and keep the uh, keep the uh, action moving the whole time, uh, you know, through the use of sound. The second battle uh, was when we introduced music and things got a little more emotional in that battle. operatic in a way and, and especially by the time you get to the third battle sequence yeah. well the third battle is the opera the second right. battle is more the emotional battle the guys that we've come you know we, we're getting to know and getting to to fall in love with are, are are beginning to get shot and killed and die and so it's more of an emotional battle it's where andrew decides he needs to go back into the battle to save more men and then the third battle is a complete opera, and, and uh, you know, um, Rob and his guys did an amazing job of stylizing all the sound effects there, Andy uh, with, with the dialogue. Mel is an amazing director where he'll come in and uh, he'll just, we show him what any, any, and he'll we'll show him a playback and he'll say, yeah, guys, that's cool. Yeah, that's, that, that's pretty cool. All right. I'll, I'll see you after lunch. You know, it's not <laughs> like he comes in and, and, and you know, um, manages, micromanages the entire soundtrack, you know, 
So he's really he's really concerned on how things are hitting him emotionally. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's a few scenes in the movie where people are being uh, uh, torched with flamethrowers, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, for us as sound guys, we're like, you know, let's crank that flamethrower up, you know. <laughs> and Mel came in, he goes, guys, I, I love the sound of that flamethrower, but he goes, but just after after the flamethrower, after you fire it. Pull the flamethrower down and let's turn up the heat on the guys a little bit. Let's hear their vo- vocalizer getting, right. you know, cooked, charbroiled in there. <laughs> and that's exactly how he'd say it. And because he knows that that the horror of what was happening wasn't the sound of the flamethrower; it was the sound of what it was doing to the guy. Right. And uh, and and uh, you know, he's a very emotional director that way. And uh, and a hundred percent correct too. Mm-hmm. As soon as we did it, it was like that's that's what it's about. So one one of the questions I had, I think one of the things that I was really struck by um, when I saw the film was um, the way you guys structure the the sound in those sequences. Um, you know, obviously it's chaos. There's a lot of different elements going on in the soundtrack. Lots of explosions. Lots of bullet buys. Lots of, but I could still hear those vocalizations. So. What it's I'm I'm almost more curious to hear about your decision making process around what you didn't put in the track, because you know obviously the the, the frame is full of stuff going on. Right. So how do you what is, is that just a is a long laborious process of trying different things and seeing what's going to land emotionally? We here's here's the deal. We were given this movie had no budget, but what they did give us was time, which is rare these days. So Rob and Andy and myself would sit down. We were down in Sydney and we were playing through the battle sequences, trying to figure out what was important and what was not important. Mm -hmm. We took every single shot and evaluated it and said, what's the most important thing we need to see or hear here? If it's it's dialogue, does it need to be intelligible? Do we need to understand exactly what they're saying or do we need to get the feel for what they're saying? Right. And then, and then, uh, and then, uh, you know, we were, we were never short of things to play. So, (laughs) you know, it was- You had more than enough material. It was about being judicious as to what we played. And then sometimes we'd realize that we'd pruned too much out of it and we'd go back the other way and, and beef things up a little bit. Uh, so and, and it was a continual process of going back and forth, and uh, and then like I said, we run into Mel out in the hall and sound for him. Say, hey Mel, you got a minute? He'd pop in, we'd sit down, we'd play him the scene. He goes, Gosh, guys, that's great. I'll see you later. And he'd pop <laughs> yeah. out again. You know, it was uh, literally. I don't think I've and I, I, I I've worked on a, a, several war films. I've never worked on a movie ever to this extent where we had fewer notes during the battles. I mean, literally, we had two or three notes from the picture editor and Mel on the battles, and that was it. And was that because Mel was hearing stuff as you guys were going along, or? Yeah, well, we would, as soon as we'd pre-dubbed, <clears throat> we'd fold that down and send it into his cutting room. Right. So he was hearing it all day anyway. As we were mixing. He was still cutting. He was still cutting and hearing what we'd done the day before. And That's I'd even say that that, that process started even earlier than the premixes. There were some scenes that yeah. you would you would deliver to John Gilbert, and right. even some bits of ADR that we would deliver to to the picture edit, so they could just hear the performances, become used to it, change it if they didn't like it, send notes back to us, and then once we got to the premix stage. Mm. As we finished, they weren't hearing anything for the first time at that point. Correct. Or, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's a, it's a really wonderful way to work. Oh, so yeah. it sounds like you guys were almost in the same place with yeah. the picture editor. Or, uh, so, uh, pretty much, sound firm Sydney. We had uh, Rob in one room, two doors down. We had John Gilbert cutting. The couple of doors down, we had the the sound effects editors and the, and the Foley team down around the corner. All the ADR was recorded in uh, in the for Australian ADR was recorded at Sound Firm, and then the dub stage was um, Kevin and us pre mixing. 
yeah. just next door as well. It was one of the most ideal situations I've ever been in because we were literally every, everybody was right down the hall from each other. The VFX <laughs> guys were right upstairs. Uh, there was a there was a you know communal uh, lunch table in the middle where we'd get together and have lunch uh, uh, quite often. And if you had a question, you just walk down the hall and pop in and ask Mel or ask the sound designers or ask the, or if we needed a foley, we'd pop in and ask Mario, "Hey, can you give us a little more rope?" Uh, you know, <laughs> sure, yeah. whatever it was, it, it, it was great. Well, it's uh, it's it's. Uh, it's an amazing kind of, you know, melting pot of different. So even that, like maybe the visual effects people can come in and take a look at sure. something you're mixing and, and think it, it changes the way they think because now they're understanding how their visuals are going to land with sound. It was also, uh, you know, Rupert Gregson Williams, who did an amazing job on the score, by the way, was hired very late in the process. He was hired the same week I got down to Sydney which was, uh, you know, uh, four weeks before we were going to be finaling. And so he had a very short time to to not only uh, compose the score, but turn it around. So what was happening is we're pre-dubbing and... Uh, Rupert is from England is sending uh, temp score or mock-up scores to Mel and John. Mm-hmm. They're listening to it in the cutting room, and then they would bring it into the dub stage, and we'd play it against the the uh, the track, and we'd make some we'd make some you know um, some suggestions. You know, like we could use a little more of this here, a little more of that there. That information would get uh, sent back to Rupert, and uh, the next day another demo would come with those revisions made. So we literally got to build this thing from scratch. Uh, um, um, from the beginning uh, in a very collaborative way. Well, that's, yeah, I was going to ask about that because certainly um, by the time the second battle sequence comes along and then obviously in, in the third as well, the music is taking an increasingly front and center kind of doing the emotional heavy lifting. Was there a fully filled out effects track for those sequences that that you kind of ducked under the music, or how did you do that dance between the between all those elements? Uh, absolutely, the the uh, we we had the dialogue and effects uh, flushed out sort of early on in this process, and then the music because we were working against temp music. As the music would come in, it would change, and 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 Rob was very clever about you know w- there were moments in the film where all of a sudden we're a hundred percent real on that battlefield, and then and then there's a moment on top of the ridge where Andrew's trying to figure out what the heck to do and he's sort of talking to god and he's saying mm-hmm. you know what do you want from me I, I don't understand what you want and and if you listen carefully at that moment you can hear that the entire battle is still going on but rob has completely stylized that so that it's just barely a, a whisper in the background and then as andrew gets the the uh the affirmation that he should go back and try to help his men all of a sudden you hear that battle come back to life again and i give a lot of credit to rob and andy for uh being able to uh make that happen to rob <laughs> so I want to talk with you guys a little bit about dynamic range because, uh, you know, uh, like like we said, almost the second half of the film is battle sequence after battle sequence after battle sequence. How do you how do you kind of thread that needle of keeping the audience engaged and keeping them on the edge of their seats, but not like just beating them into a pulp from with loud sound? It was well, it was built up in the shape of the design of the whole track, you know, from early on, having no music in that first battle meant we weren't, we, we were, it was loud, 
but um, it wasn't wall to wall. There's, there's lots of space and there's lots of clarity in the track. So in that orchestration of the backgrounds and the foregrounds, a lot of that is about how, how long you can sustain that loudness for. So we can, we can open with a bang, then we've got to bring it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. then, we've, then we've had a bit of a respite. We can come back with some more impact there. So a lot of time was spent sculpting that. You know, we would go over and over and over those long 20 minute sections, working out if we'd gone too far. Right. You know, yeah. if, if too soon, if we'd gone too early too soon, or if we'd sustained it for too long at any, at any point. And that's why once when the music comes in, we can bring the sound effects back for the second battle. And then in the third battle, we totally stylized the sound effects. So it's, it's all about the music and the sound effects are complementing the score. I want to ask you guys um, too about like the. I, I was really interested by the first ten minutes of the movie, which you know it's it's about it's about you know Desmond as a young boy and kind of his relationship with his father and also with his with his brother. Um, but I, I felt like you guys took some opportunities to kind of introduce some stylistic elements and non naturalistic elements, even in that first ten minutes, that kind of set the vocabulary for the film moving forward. Can you talk about that? Yeah, early on, one of the sounds uh, that Rob mentioned before that Mel was very interested in was this headspace idea that, that, that kept coming back through Desmond's life when he had his accident with his, his brother uh, and then, uh, you know, going into to war and always this kind of headspace, this headspace vibe and um, getting that sound right. And, and we, had it, we had it a lot more heightened. And then once we had the music and all that come in, we actually kind of toned it down a little bit. And it just became more of a more of a fluid moment of of, of being with Desmond, being with his breaths, um, having Kevin put his breaths in a in a space that, you know, told us that we weren't we weren't in a real space. We were in a kind of a visceral space, um, and being with Desmond and his POV and the way he's hearing things and experiencing things. There was there was also a moment a moment there after he hits his brother over the head with a brick where, where uh, you know we just took bits and pieces of dialogue and uh, and doubled them up, tripled them up advanced some and played some before and after and did all sorts of crazy stylizing. And yeah. then I thought, okay, well, we're going to see how this, we'll run this by John and Mel and see how this feels. Right. And they came yeah. in and they would just say, great. You know, we're like, okay. <laughs> and not because they were completely checked out of the process. No, no, no. They were like, very, they were we, very happy about it. It yeah. was like, I, I think the idea was like Andy said, we were trying to get into, uh, in, into Andrew uh, channeling Desmond into his headspace, yeah, and and the idea is is that when that kind of stuff happens, you don't hear things right. You hear things funky and you hear things weird, and uh, and and uh, you know and and that was our, our our goal was to to try to achieve that. You're talking about like when you get into a really emotionally heightened state. Like, well, listen, like he after, he, after he hits his brother with the head of the brick, we're hearing the, the folks saying, oh, my God, is he okay? What happened? Yeah, brother? And, and we're dead, hearing right? all yeah. that dialogue doubled up, tripled up. We're right. hearing it with some with reverbs on it, some with delays on it. And uh, and, it, and it literally is just uh, – and then what we're focusing on Desmond and his breasts at that time. That's what we're hearing clear is his breasts, and we're, we're hardly hearing what the parents are saying. Anymore. And that breath allows you to go into his – like, so you're almost experiencing Basically, it from Basically, we're in his head, and we're hearing it from his perspective. Well, I wanted to ask you that because I, I was – aware of Desmond's breathing at points throughout the movie. And so that became almost like a like a recurring motif for uh, you guys about about getting in. Mel's big on keeping the characters alive, you know, and uh and and he felt strongly there's another point in the very beginning uh, of the battle where the guys are up on the just climbing up on the ridge and as they're crawling 
further into the battlefield, all we're hearing is their breaths. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a statement on on, <clears throat> on, on, on the personal nature of how how each character was feeling. I mean, it, it, it's it's them, and it's it's a very quiet moment, and they don't know what they're going into. And and uh, it was, I think it was very. Really it makes effective. it really emotional, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you guys even did a head. I I felt like you guys did a head fake at one point with the with the breathing because at some point Desmond goes down into the <clears throat> into the Japanese bunker, uh, and it's a close up on him, and I think I'm hearing him breathing, but the camera pans over, and it's actually the Japanese guy next to him who's breathing really heavily because they're down there. They're, they're both down there together and kind of freaked out by each other. Yeah, it's a nice reveal, isn't it? Yeah. It's a well, <laughs> well-planned reveal by Mel. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of moments actually in those tunnels, you know, big shock with um, the reveal of the guy hanging as well. Um, and I think we've spoken a, a little bit about the, the sound for this, uh, for, not for maybe for this particular moment, but also when um, Desmond has his dream in between the, the two battles. And uh, the, uh, the, we couldn't get the sound quite right for the shock moment. And um, you know, Mel was great at um, getting up on, on, on a mic and uh, producing a sound effect with his own voice. Oh, did he, he perform just, live for you on, 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 on the stage? Absolutely perfect for Kevin to mix in to, the, uh, to all speakers in the room and, and give us a real shock. Um, Andrew Garfield and Luke Bracier hunkered down in the foxhole just after the first battle. It's first time we have quiet. And uh, and uh, like Andy said, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Garfield kind of dozes off into a dream, and just at that moment, a Japanese soldier pops his head up over mm-hmm, the berm, mm-hmm. and 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 Mel wanted to shock and scare the audience, <laughs> and 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 you know, we couldn't find the right sound in the sound design or in the music to do that. So Mel uh, Mel says, "Can I give it a try?" And so we gave him a microphone, and uh, you know, we ran him the scene, and and as as a Japanese soldier pops his head up, Mel leans into the mic and goes. Hurrah! you know, into the microphone, but with Mel's voice, and it went on quite a bit longer, it was very deep. <laughs> and we took that sound and we put it into all 56 speakers in the room at one time. And trust me, uh, when I say when we played that sound back, it scared the shit out of all of it us. It was shocking. Too. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and we actually used that uh, treatment one more time when uh, Desmond was down in the tunnel and he runs into the uh, hanging uh, Japanese soldier. That's great. Yeah. Uh, what was the experience like working uh, in Atmos on the film? Um, it was It was great. We... We edited, um, or I edited, the sound effects in Atmos from the beginning using the Dolby renderer, um, so I could pan all of the bullet whizzes and the incoming bombs and all those sort of meticulous, um, painstaking tasks you need to do. Um, and it was great to do that early on and carry all of that information through to the final mix. Um, and we actually found that the the Dolby panner had a a smoother pan for those for that application than doing it you know as we'd normally do in the pro tools so that was a that was a great sort of added bonus um and then uh, yeah we, we we would fold that atmos mix down to 7-1 stems to to mix our 7-1 mix then when we came to do the atmos mix everything just, was already there it was all there we just opened it up and i'm sure you know when people think Dolby Atmos and Hacksaw Ridge, they're like, oh, well, you guys must have gone crazy on the big battle sequences. But yeah, were, no. I'm curious, were there some more quiet moments that were, where the Atmos was really useful for you guys? Um, well, we didn't open it up into Atmos until Real 5. Mm. So you kind of held back. Until yeah, if, there, you, yeah. if you're watching the film, you know, you've got no idea what's going to happen. Until you get it into the battle sequence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we really held off on using it, which I think made made its impact even greater that's great because you know it just comes from nowhere 
So I, I understand from the comments that you guys have made that this was a, a was a budgetarily challenged film. Um, what were some of the uh, you know what were the biggest issues for you guys kind of coming into this uh, from a creative standpoint? Was it just time management and not having enough resources? Uh, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. You know, listen. Um, you know, I don't know if this makes any sense to anybody, but our business isn't like any other business. I, I believe that if you uh, if you if you're trying to build a wall. And you need a hundred thousand dollar wall, and you only have thirty thousand dollars. And you go to the contractor and you say, "I need this hundred thousand dollar wall, but I only got thirty thousand dollars." You're going to get a thirty thousand dollar wall. <laughs> In our business, even though the budget wasn't high, there the, everyone still steps up to the plate and does the best that they can. All that right. means is we work harder, we work longer, and we work for less money. But right. the, the, in I, I don't think the budget in any way. Um, you know, took away from the effort that everyone put in on the film. I mean, the only thing is, is the guys didn't have a, a big budget to go out and, and shoot army tanks and shoot, our, you know, and record artillery and go, you know, record sure. you know, high power weapons and all that. And so they had to be real thrifty and in, in, in figuring out how to, you know, they scoured the planet to get the best sounds to put in this movie. Yeah. But like I said, um, I, I think everybody, uh, even though it was budget challenge, gave 110 percent uh, just because the movie needed it. And and listen. Uh, you know, Mel didn't demand it, but we wanted to do it for Mel. He's he's such an amazing guy to work for. Andrew Garfield, um, uh, he was acting at 110% in this film, and, 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 and we owed it to him to step up to the plate to try to support the, the, the film. So uh, so I don't think the budget challenges affected us in any way, other than we, we didn't eat so much for lunch, and we, <laughs> ate, ate, we were more budget conscious on what we had for breakfast. And we didn't go through a lot of recuts either, so, you know, that can eat into the budget too we didn't have oh, our... certainly like you do if you do 10 test screenings and go back yeah. time and time again that that's what tends to eat up a budget yeah budget, we sure. would do a test screening but that was beneficial to us then we could we could learn from that and apply it we didn't uh, we weren't throwing out a whole lot of work that we'd done all the mixing that we did even in the temps we kept uh you know we added that that's where we started our pre-dubs from was where we ended our temp dubs so the whole process was very efficient. So, you know, sometimes you can chew through a lot of time with reconforming, remixing, of course, all that stuff. We yeah. didn't do any of that, yeah. luckily. So you get to focus on the creative work. Exactly. Yeah. Which is great. Mm. Well, um, I really want to thank you guys uh, for uh, letting us come in today and talk with you about, um, I think, some truly amazing work on on Hacksaw Ridge. Congratulations to you guys on your on your Academy Award nominations. Uh, best of luck to you guys on the 26th. Kevin, um, fingers crossed, maybe 21st time is the charm. Uh, listen, man, I, I tell you, I, I think that uh, I think that if that were to happen uh, this year, it would be um, it would be a real honor and I'd be thrilled. And I, I can't think of a better film uh, for it to happen on. I, I think uh, I don't begrudge the previous 20 nominations, but I think uh, <laughs> I think this film is, is uh, I'm very proud of it. and I think it's very worthy. Well, it's great work, guys, and you guys have a lot to be proud of, so congratulations. Uh, This is Glenn Kaiser signing off uh, from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection podcast focusing today on Hacksaw Ridge. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.